Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay Harrington. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm good. This is the first episode of a new season, new year. Yeah, new year. Yep. And I know, you know, as of the date we're recording this, which is January 10th, this would have been the day where you would have been all pumped up about Michigan football being in the national championship <laughs> game had they not getting dis- gotten destroyed by Georgia a couple weeks back. Right. Yes. So, thank you for the reminder. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, just in case you <laughs> forgot about that, I just wanted that, to. Wo- that wounded almost healed. So I'm glad that you were able to pick at it a little bit. Yeah. Well, since many people will be listening to this the morning after we're, we're recording, do you have a prediction for tonight that you want to share? Not a prediction, but just kind of a wish that Georgia um, looks to be the world beaters that they were against Michigan. And that would, might make me feel a little bit better. I don't know. But uh, so I guess I'm going to predict that as well. It's tough to beat a team twice in one season in Alabama. Got them earlier. So let's go with Georgia by four. OK, got, well, actually, what the prediction I was looking for was whether Jim Harbaugh is going to the NFL. Because <laughs> that seems <laughs> to be in we'll... the rumor mill. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, I was talking about the game, but that is another been the, wound. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Michigan, Michigan basketball is, is pretty bad too. So we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's move on, Tom. Yes. Now that I've ruined your day um, <laughs> and bored all of our listeners. Um, <laughs> so in any event, uh, let's talk about an issue, Tom, that we, we've talked about extensively in the first episode of our podcast, which is about you know the importance of having a niche. Um, so we're going to take a different stab at it today. Um, but if you went back to episode one and wanted to listen to our thoughts on, on niching more broadly, um, today we're going to talk more about the, the relevance and need and, and value of having a niche as a, as a content creator more specifically. And um, as I was describing to you before we hit, hit record, you know, one of the things that spurred me to want to talk about this topic is that um, in, in recent days, I've gotten more questions from people and I've seen more posts from people on LinkedIn about, uh, you know, is has there been an algorithm change? You know, we hear this every few months, I feel like, because people think maybe mm-hmm. all my engagement's down and is it due to the algorithm? And it might be, I have no idea. Um, but I don't think anyone else really does either, if that's the case. My, my response to many people, though, to that sort of question is, is typically, you know, even if it is or has, we're all still playing on the same playing field, right? It's not like it's it's skewed in favor of certain people. So we're the same same playing field. And then probably more importantly, it may or may not be the algorithm, but I, my guess is it's that we're seeing more and more people contributing content, right? I mean, so if there is, if engagement, if you're finding your views to be down, it might just be because there's just more um, competition for the eyeballs that you're seeking. And so um, that that may be the big thing. And, and what we'll get into today, Tom, is that you know, one of the one of the remedies or possible solutions to the problem of I'm not getting as much engagement as I used to is, you know, are you are you tailoring your content to a particular audience? Um, are you do you have a really defined niche for your content? Um, and and so that that is really, I think, tease us up for our discussion today, which is, you know, don't focus on the things that you can control, sort of, you know, the stoic mindset. Um, and that relates to your marketing as well. And one, and, the, and you can't control the algorithm, but you can control 
you know, how you approach your audience and cultivate an audience. And oftentimes that means finding a niche. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm seeing the same types of posts that you're talking about or questions to from clients. And um, it, it's kind of funny. You, you see people reflexively wanting to blame an algorithm update on just about anything. Right. Um, and like you said, it, it's, it could be that it could be algorithmic. It could be um, this. We won't cover this today, but just, you know, it, we're getting off a time of year where maybe people aren't spending a ton of time on LinkedIn, say, right over the holidays and first week back when you're super busy. So in order for there to be engagement, there has to be users online to be engaged. So it could just be that. But the larger point that you made, I think, is what we should focus on today and what listeners should focus on as creators is that it doesn't matter like if you look at raw numbers, if they're up or down, what matters is the formula for success and converting whatever engagement is online into something meaningful for you and your business. And so the rules for that, I think, is what we want to revisit because um, algorithmic or otherwise, um, the fundamentals remain. And I think the fundamentals become more important if there is algorithmic changes. Yeah, for sure. I, and so I was just thinking about this. I mean, yeah, what it really comes down to, I guess, in any environment is is sort of the following formula, right? It's this probably goes without saying, but let's say it anyway. It's high quality content, right? That's that's you need to have high quality content. But the thing that's often missed as we get to you know the issue of um, importance of a content niche is contextualized for a specific audience. Um, and you know, and and the reason for that is because of this of this issue. And and I can't remember. I, I saw this. Um, I can't remember the author of this article, um, but he was talking about. The fact that you know the problem for many content creators is not what we often say it is, which is that it's so noisy out there. As in, there's so much bad content that it's hard to stand out. It's that there's so much good content that it's hard to stand out. Right? We're we're competing for attention, and attention in terms of other people trying to create thought leadership content. Also, Netflix. Amazon, Apple, you know, all of the all of the streaming services that are producing amazing content, um, music, podcasts, there's, there's just so many um, forms of, of uh, content that are competing for the attention that we're seeking, that it's really hard, um, you know, to stand out. And if all you're doing is creating something that's of general interest, it's going to be even harder to do that. Um, you can even see this with the streamers, right? The, the thing that people take note of with Netflix is like their growth is being driven by the fact that they're creating shows just for you know audiences in different countries, and they're reproducing shows in different languages. They're not just counting on everyone you know picking up the the English version, the U.S. version of a show anymore. They're contextualizing it and changing it in certain subtle ways to make it appealing to those micro audiences. And we need to think in those same terms. I mean, the um, you know, the issue of the the algorithm, is it the algorithm on LinkedIn or is it something else? I mean, I I think if I think about my own experience, like I, this is anecdotal, but let's just dig into it for a moment. If I look back over the past 30 days, you know, early to mid-December, I was continuing to um post content. But I was my views were way down, right? Um, until I got to the week after Christmas, when you'd think there would be less people on LinkedIn. And mm -hmm. from that period until now, you know, I've I've gotten you know maybe five to ten x the number of views on my content in that last two weeks than I did probably in the three weeks before that. And I could say, well, I don't know, is that algorithmic? I doubt it. 
there's probably less people on the platform looking at that content. What's the what's the missing variable? Well, I think during that three weeks leading up to the holidays, I was really busy and I didn't have time to create high quality content. Um, I had more time. I've had more time and capacity to be like thoughtful about creating content. I took most of the time off of serving clients. So that that piece of the formula, high quality content, I think I did a better job of over the last few weeks um, as opposed to the few weeks before that. So all of these things kind of go into this notion of high quality content contextualized for a specific audience, which is really what we're talking about when we're talking about having a niche. Yep. And that specific audience thing, I think that's where people get sometimes scared to niche down because they feel like we uh, there's a danger that you're going to miss out on some opportunity. The smaller your audience gets defined, the fewer people who are in it. Right. And then what if, you know, you're missing this opportunity to get engagement from all these other people? I think that's just natural, right? That's the FOMO of fear of missing out. It's natural to say, oh, geez, what do I miss an opportunity? And you addressed this in a post. So obviously this whole notion of niching has been top of mind because you had a post last week um, addressing some of the apprehensions, one of which is the quality. How would you uh, maybe counter that, that, that apprehension? Is There's a quality over quantity notion, I think, too, is when you're creating high value content for a smaller audience, there tends to be a higher proportion of engaged users to that content. So it's almost like, yes, the the pool might be smaller, but the level of engagement could be much higher. And that's what we're truly going for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not, this is like a, a winner, a winners take most or all scenario when it comes to content creation, right? Like if you can, you can put out a lot of, you know, quality content. Um, but again, if it's just sort of, you know, it's, it's as good as, you know, the 30% of other content creators out there, you're, you're going to get lost in the wash. You want to, you want to define your market small and narrow enough where you can be seen as like one of the top content creators, say like, you know, top five content creators in your niche. Like that's where you're going to get the benefit of this. Then start, people start seeing you as an expert. They start seeking your content out. All of those opportunities start flowing to you for opportunities to, speak and write and publish and all of these things happen, but that you can only, I mean, there's certain, sure. There's certain people who like rise above all of the noise because they're just, they're famous, right. Or whatever case Mm -hmm. might be, they've had massive success. People pay attention to Elon Musk's tweets because he's, you know, the richest man on earth who is a a genius. That's not Mm -hmm. most of us. Um, so we need to not think quite so broadly. We need to continue narrow, narrowing things down. And to your point, Tom, that means you have to necessarily foreclose other opportunities. And and that's the point, right? I I think the mistake many people make is, oh, I might miss out on some opportunities if I don't narrow down and and again, contextualize my content and my marketing and my business development efforts. Um, and, And that's true, you will. But you'll 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 you won't capitalize on any opportunities. You won't generate any opportunities if you're just seen as another commodity, right? Um, one among many, left only to compete on price. Uh, and so that's not certainly where a place you want to be in. And I've I've rarely I don't know if I've ever bumped into a scenario um, with a with a client or anyone who has thought about a niche that was too small to support like their wildest ambitions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. In, name a niche for me that's too small to like 
you know, to satisfy or or have a the market potential of satisfying someone's grandest business development uh, ambitions. I, I rarely ever see that. It's it's you know, what what is it? You might you you would ask most people and say, look, if you could have a two million dollar book of business, um, would you would that would that be like satisfactory to you? Would that would you feel like that was a win? And most people would say, absolutely, that'd be amazing. Um, but they think that a hundred million dollar total addressable market's like too small somehow because they're missing <laughs> out on the other whatever thirty trillion dollars of economic activity happening. So in any event, these are I think some of the the things people have to overcome and just think about it. Like I'm not trying to build a trillion dollar practice. I might right. be trying in a best case scenario to build a million dollar practice and and almost any niche I can think of. I can do that with it, you know, comfortably within that niche. And you're referring to a, a vertical niching. And we had, remember we had David C. Baker on to talk about niching. Yeah. Who David C. Baker is what a, a sort of a management consultant for creative agencies. That's right. So he, 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 and he talks about the combination or maybe making a choice either or, or both of vertical and horizontal niching. So vertical is niching according to an industry and vertical, uh, I'm sorry, horizontal might be niching uh, based on subject matter or domain or something like that. And mm -hmm. you can do the same thing with your content or do both. So you could say, and you have a simple formula for this, as you wrote in your post, it's, it's to come up with a niche is I do X for Y. The Y is the addressable market, the X is what you do. And if, you're, if, if it's too scary for you to focus on an industry, Y, then focus on X. And I'm thinking here of uh, someone like a Laura Frederick, who we've had on the show and we've had in our the Thought Leader Collaborative to present. And she focuses her content almost exclusively on contracts. So that's an that's yep. a way of horizontally niching as well. So yep. um, your formula that you I think would you agree the best of both worlds is if you can niche X and Y. And now yeah, you're doing yeah, a, and let, yeah. right. I would say unless you're you know, you're you're at the leading edge of some unique practice, right? Where it's like you have this. Like I would say, um, you know, the guy uh, who I think this is back in the '70s, but or who knows, probably the '80s, whatever it was, who kind of pioneered the um, the technique we all now know as spacking, right? Um, special purpose acquisition companies, where you know. SPACs are used to take companies public, um, and and they've became very hot like over the last decade. Um, and so, you know, the the guy who's like the foremost expert in in SPAC work um, didn't really have to worry about an industry specialization because his practice was so niche and he had this unique expertise. Um, but for most of us, yeah, like if you can if you can really define industry specialization and um, practice specialization, then you're really onto something because, you know, you might be the only person talking about those issues. Um, you know, someone like, uh, uh, you know, our friend who we've had on the podcast, Brian O'Keefe, uh, is, is someone who I think represents this well, where he's do, he's doing RWI insurance, uh, for, um, so essentially like private equity deals for the most part. And so, you know, that's that kind of X, Y, uh, service and industry niche that we're talking about when we're talking about getting really narrow and specific and contextualizing and and you know you the the market again may not be that big i think what people struggle with is like how am i going to ever build a big audience or following around my content if i'm so niche and it's like well that's not the point 
<laughs> unless you are, unless what you're really valuing, unless the scorecard you've established for yourself is just about, you know, more attention and visibility and really doesn't take into account, you know, who's paying attention, but if who's paying attention, because those are the people that can hire you and help you build your practice or what matter to you. And I think that for most people, you know, I talk about valuing dollars over dopamine hits. Um, that that's what really matters, and that's what you should be focused on. So small, you know, small but mighty uh, network where your your content is super contextualized is the way to go. I'm glad you brought up Brian because I cite him uh, as an example in the book that I wrote, um, and I address niche because I remember when we first met him, he said. Uh, I think he said on the show, he said, I, there might be 20, 25 companies in the entire world, mm -hmm. or, or was it six? No, it was six companies in the entire world that would hire him. And at each of those, there might be 10 to 20 either clients or influencers of a purchasing decision. Right. And he wanted to create a podcast for them. So yeah. he wanted to create content, right, for such a niche audience. And I'll never forget, he said, if we do this, we'll be the only one in the world doing a podcast on reps and warranties insurance. And I thought, well, yeah, probably will be. Um, but that didn't dissuade him at all. And it actually, in his own testament, he'll tell you it led to business opportunities. I don't know if you can go much more niche than that, but yeah. to your point. Yeah, and, and I, I was just... going to say, oh, sorry. I, and I was going to say, you know, all you have to do is follow along with Brian's content. I mean, I think he's alluded to this and, and you know, that that it's worked tremendously well for him. Um, right. You know, it's it's not like he's, it's not like by going so niche, he's again, well, I shouldn't say that. He has he has turned away from a tremendous amount of opportunity, but by turning away from that other opportunity, he's actually like, you know, cemented himself as someone who's who's got this unique area and, and had a tremendous growth in his practice as a result. Right. And um, saying no, as we learned in my favorite book, Essentialism, at least my favorite book in the last couple of years, saying no to something means saying yes to something else. So yeah. if you're saying no to the poor fit opportunities or just any old opportunity that allows you the bandwidth and the, the mindset to say yes to what you truly want. Last point I'll make, or just I think it's important to point out, and maybe you can comment on this, going back to the whole reticence to niching, is I've heard people, I think, even comment on your post, and maybe you made this point in the original post and that is it doesn't mean that you can't take other opportunities mm -hmm. like you don't have to say no uh from running your business to maybe a good opportunity that's outside of your niche and it's just a great fit you want to say no to the poor fits but there might be a good fit um and that's perfectly okay and i think maybe that puts some people at ease to say okay so what i'm doing is i'm focusing my niche on my content strategy mostly my practice, but not to the exclusion of some lucrative opportunity that comes along the way that again, checks the right boxes. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and you know, we've, I, we've both had that experience, right? Um, I know in terms of focusing my content on lawyers and law firms, um, it's, you know, every, almost everything I say in that niche could apply it to a management consultant, right? Because it's obviously it's the same business. You know, we're selling mm -hmm. anyone who's selling expertise. Most of what we're saying or talking about here on this podcast is is applicable. So, so for one, yes, any you know, people are smart. Um, they know that if you serve, you know, one area of sophisticated professional services law firms, you could easily take that expertise and translate it to management consulting world. 
Um, so, so clients and prospective clients in industries adjacent to those that you target um, through your content and your marketing um, are smart enough to to reach out to you, and they're not going to say, "Oh, it, well, he doesn't," you know. He doesn't serve management consulting. He doesn't have that on his LinkedIn headline. So, so I, you know, I won't reach out, even though I think it would be a really good fit. Um, clients mm. are smart enough to make that leap. Um, and then, yeah, you know, for for everyone who's building a practice, there's more channels to develop business than just the marketing we do, right? It's mm. and like the content we're creating. Um, we have relationships with people. Um, we have past clients. We have people who probably referred us work over time. Our practices evolved over time. So anyways, all these people, they're not paying attention to like everything you're putting out into the world. Like they're not taking note of, oh, uh, you know, whatever, John Smith uh, wrote something for the automotive industry. Like, so anything that falls outside of the automotive industry, I'm never going to send him work again. You know, people just aren't. <laughs> paying attention moment by moment to what we're doing, despite how we all think we're the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the point being, there's other channels for your work. To, to the point you made, Tom, of, of, uh, that I mentioned in the post, it's that whole notion of your, your niche, especially as it relates to your marketing and the content you're creating, it's all about the work you might be actively pursuing through one channel. You, know, you might just have that niche that you're you know, exploiting on LinkedIn, but you don't, you don't have that niche anywhere else within your public personal brand. Um, but it's, it doesn't represent the entirety of the work that you're doing. Um, it's just more of the work you're pursuing strategically and how you're going about that. So it's platform specific, it's context specific. Um, and that's, I think how we create meaningful marketing is like, you know, understanding the platform, the channel, um, the audience that exists on that platform, what they're looking for, and then, and then, how do we exploit that? Um, exploit probably sounds like the wrong word, but how do we how do we take advantage of that or or operate within that environment? Um, and and oftentimes that means getting more narrow. Do you have? I'm curious where you start with a potential client because you do some consulting in this area. So um, somebody comes to you and says, "Okay." I, I can force myself to drink your Kool-Aid on niching. I want to mm-hmm. do it. I'm afraid to do it. I don't know where to start. Do you have a place or process by which you take that person through first? Keeping in mind, this is maybe too specific of a use case, but that there's still some built-in hesitancy to fully embrace this idea of niching. Where would you start? Mm-hmm. So I think that what I typically would go through is saying like, all right, you know, to the extent we were to, you know, not, not forcing them to make a decision, but let's just do a thought experiment here to the extent that you, you were open to the idea of, of pursuing a niche focus, like what would that be? And, you know, then we start looking at, all right, what's, what sort of past experience do you have? Um, Is there a concentration of clients within a particular industry, for example, um, that, that is a, and then, you know, once you sort of look at, okay, that's their past experience, you start analyzing, is that a, is that an area of growth like that industry? Um, do you, does this person have intellectual curiosity in that area? Um, do they enjoy working with those types of clients? So you start going through some of these, some of these um, different permutations and, and different factors, analyzing them, weighing them, that kind of thing. And then you, once you get to the point where, you know, usually a client's like, well, maybe there's like two or three different areas that I, I could think about um, a niche. And this is more of the industry vertical, you know, sort of analysis. Um, and 
And then, you know, it might come down to, okay, um, I, I, I might not push them so hard to say, you've got to make a decision immediately, but it's like, maybe we run some experiments, like a little bit of A-B testing. Um, and we, we think about starting to create content and then we tweak it for, you know, the different audiences. Cause many times the co underlying content itself, uh, might be just easily, um, you know, again, contextualized for those different audiences, industry A and industry B, um, because the underlying advice is the same. We're just speaking to and contextualizing it for, for that audience. And then it just is a matter of, let's try to find maybe a publishing opportunity, um, you know, with the, with the trade association for that industry and, and see how things are resonating and see, you know, see what comes of that. So it doesn't need to be like, all right, make a decision, you know, go a hundred miles an hour, like go all in. Um, there can be some experimenting for the reticent or hesitant, uh, client who can't seem to make a leap, but some narrowing, some, you know, more narrow focused approach is going to be better than, than nothing. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And I think they'll start to then see some maybe increased engagement. They'll start to see some signals that, Ooh, this is actually having a positive effect. And I think that will give them the encouragement and take away some of the apprehension. Um, and then they'll continue to my experiences, then they'll continue to embrace the notion and then want to niche down further. Um, pretty soon getting to a point where there's no need to continue to niche further down because you're about as, as, as tight as you need to get. Um, yeah. one other thought exercise, uh, that I take a client through is going back to, I can't remember which book it was in. I think it was in the dip where Seth Godin talks about the notion of being the best in the world. And he asked the question, what can you be the best in the world at? Mm -hmm. Which at first sounds really scary. Like, well, I'm not the best in the world. I mean, come on. But he uses the example of a local pizza place. And for them, the world isn't the entire world. The world mm -hmm. is a certain, you know, square mile radius to which they might deliver or somebody might want to show up. And he says, the only thing that they need to do is be the best pizza place in that world. And sometimes if I present that to a client who might have some apprehension, they get energized by that because there's this feeling, well, I can be the best at this very small little thing that I do better than anyone I know in this small niche industry. And that, that gets them thinking first about horizontally niching and then vertically niching and then it's a high you're there and then they're totally energized by it they're like okay and i think that's sort of what we just what we saw happening with brian o'keefe and his podcasting partner jenna that they're like oh we could we could really be the best at this and they probably are in the yeah. world yeah. yeah so in in yeah. their world though which is what seth points out right no i love that i think that's a really smart way to think about it because yeah you can you know you can, you can, it's like, it's almost like, you know, as, as two people here, Tom, both of us have, have written books. It's like the, the narrower, the, the category on Amazon that you choose for your, for your book publishing, the, the higher up in the rankings you're going to be right. You don't need sure. to actually sell that many books to be like, you know, in the, have, have a, a top 10 book in a category. And that's sort of the same notion, like shrink, shrink the world, even though, and, and, and again, the point being, how big of a world do you need to play in? And for most people, it's far smaller than they think. Right. Because in we're, you know, obviously this podcast talk about niche is we're geared specifically towards lawyers and law firms, but I'm sure I know we have listeners who are in other professional services mm -hmm. going back to the, how big of a market do you really need? If you ask them, how many clients could you even take on like new clients right. and how yep. much do you want? 
the numbers are usually single digit to, you know, 10, 15, 20, a whole year. So you don't need to market to an audience of tens of thousands to get five, six, eight, 12 deals a year, right? You just need to maybe think of Brian O'Keefe's addressable market, 120. Yeah, that's that's, you know, there's probably plenty of fruit to be picked in that small of an orchard. Yeah. And, and, you know, who who else would someone go to uh, besides the one person who's, uh, the you know, the small number of people who are like, this is all we do is we're here to serve you and no one else. And that's pretty right. attractive to a client. Yep. I'm also thinking of franchise.law. Remember that he was oh, a guest yes. on our, they yep. started out as being only franchise law mm-hmm. and then they further niched down to just franchise law for franchisees. I think it was franchisors, right? franchisors. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, business started booming because of yep. it. So it could be scary, but I think if you, if you truly embrace it and at least start with this AB testing, like I'm just going to experiment. Mm-hmm. Most people I think will see the fruits of their labor pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. And uh, you know, this is another topic for another day, but like that you were talking Tom about, you know, how many, if most people really took a moment to stop and analyze how many clients do I actually want and or need, um, you know, it is smaller than you think. And that, that gets back to the whole idea of like, what is, you know, what's upstream of all of this? It's like, well, what is the, you know, yeah. What is the practice I want to build, but what's the life I want to lead? And, you know, do I, how much, yeah, more clients maybe equals more money, but is that what I'm really valuing? And all these things need to go into this and can help you overcome the fear of niching down. Once you're like, yeah, I've I've sort of understood the boundaries of my ambition. And, you know, it's not as big as maybe it is, it seems when it's just all, you know, really haven't, it's not, it, does, it doesn't feel concrete. And, and, you know, I haven't really taken the time to analyze it. But once I, once you really stop and say like, all right, I don't need hundred clients, I need 10 and that's going to support the lifestyle I desire. Well, then why not niche down? Um, because that's going to be a lot easier of a road to get to that 10 clients than, than trying to appeal to everyone. Yeah. And if you approach it from, you know, lifestyle first as the question, like, I love that idea is it might not just be more clients that you need. It might just be better clients. Mm-hmm. So you start to examine, all right, if you could do nothing but this you fill in the blank this is how you're going to spend your day jay i can do nothing but blank for this type of client because it's easy i get energized by it i can maybe bill you know a premium fee for it um then you focus then you discovered your niche your content niche because if you could get all of those to the exclusion of all these other clients that yes pay the bills but they drive you nuts the work's mundane it's Mm -hmm. uh, laborious i can't outsource any of it that type of thing I think that becomes illuminating because you define the lifestyle first. Then you say, okay, what do I want out of my business? And then it's like, all right, well, now I know that. What do I want out of my content strategy? Yep. And it all, it all feeds that bigger purpose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, maybe, a, maybe a topic for another day. Cause I think we've got, we, we scratched the surface on that whole issue of like, you know, lifestyle design, driving all of the choices we make um, related to our, our professional life. And, uh, I would like to dig into that a bit more and maybe our listeners would, would like to as well. So let's stop there. Um, I guess, Tom, uh, unless you had anything further on, on content niche, or I think we, we covered it pretty well. No, I like it, but I'm with you on the whole lifestyle design as a topic idea. Cause I think okay. that's what thought leaders need to do, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to truly be a thought leader, you need to be an expert for a small audience to some 
end? Like, what are you doing this mm-hmm. for? Right. So, right. Okay. Exactly. Sounds good. Uh, for now, I will um, go root on the Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, <laughs> hope that the Oakland Raiders don't steal Harbaugh, and uh, I'll stay focused on my niche uh, the rest of the day here. Sounds good, Tom. We'll talk to you All soon. Right. See ya. Okay, bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.